So I want to welcome you all here again this evening and um, glad that you could be here. Those who are watching online or on DVD, wherever you may be here in Australia or around the world, a big warm welcome to you and I pray that you'll be thoroughly blessed by this message from God's Word and from the pages of history, a fascinating subject this evening uh, that we will plunge into together in our series, Discover Hope, Finding Peace in Uncertain Times. And this evening's message I have entitled, History's Greatest Hoax. Do you know what a hoax is? Who here knows what a hoax is? Have you been taken in by a hoax? Some of you have. Some of you maybe haven't. I'll share with you a story in just a moment where I got taken in by a hoax. This is what a hoax is according to the dictionary. A hoax is a deliberately fabricated falsehood made to masquerade as what? As truth. Something intended to deceive or defraud. Okay, that's what a hoax is. Now tonight, we're going to talk about what I consider to be history's greatest hoax. Now that's a pretty big claim, isn't it? to say that we're dealing with history's greatest hoax. And you will be able to assess whether that is true or not at the end of this presentation. But tonight I want to start off with a little hoax, a little deception that happened in my life. Now this is me as you can see. I was only a little fella there, maybe about six or seven or five or six. I don't know how old I was. There's my younger sister, Rachel. She's um, three years younger than me. And there's my other sister, young, couple of years younger than her, Lydia, and there's my mum, and there is our first car that my dad bought, uh, a Holden Station Wagon Kingswood, go the Kingswoods, blue, um, remember the power steering on those things, oh, it was like going for a workout to the gym every time you got in the car, I still remember it um, to this day, not that I did much driving, um, but yeah, that was our, our first car. Now, I grew up in a family where my parents were health nuts. How many here grew up in a family where mum and dad were health nuts? Okay. And uh, they just wanted to give us everything that was healthy. My dad would go to the markets um, on his push bike, even before we had the Holden Kingswood, and he would, he would buy, you know, fruits you know, buy the box and he would make everything fresh. We didn't go to the shop and buy jams from the shop. No, 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 no. You, you made it fresh, fresh jams, you know, fresh this, fresh that. Everything was fresh. You see, they came from Macedonia. And in Macedonia, guess what? You make everything yourself. You know, there is no coals up the road. <laughs> there's, there's no woolies, yes. <laughs> um, so you just make it all fresh. And anyway... Um, Whilst, whilst all the boys and girls at school um, had their, you know, Sandboy chips and their chocolate bars and their primers and this and that, all their drinks and so forth, my mum packed for us all this healthy stuff that she had made herself. And, um, and the treat was, for me, a big treat was getting one of those little boxes with, um, with raisins. Can you still buy those little boxes with raisins? I had that in my lunchbox while all my mates had, you know, like Snickers bars and all this sort of stuff. And so my parents were right into health. I didn't appreciate it when I was a kid. You know, all I wanted when I was a kid was ice cream and chocolate and chips and so on and so forth. Today, I appreciate what my parents did back then. But I remember this lady, she worked at the Cadbury factory and she was like the favorite person in the world for me. When she came to visit us, guess what she brought? Chocolates. Oh my, how excited was I when I saw those chocolates and she'd always give us some chocolates and, um, and I just couldn't wait for this woman to come and visit us. I can't remember her name, um, but I just remember her as the chocolate lady. <laughs> I was just so excited when I see the chocolate lady turn up. And I remember on this one occasion, she turned up and she gave us a box of roses. You know, box of roses, chocolates? She gave us a box of roses, one for me, one for my sisters, so three boxes between the three of us. And my sisters, you know what they did? They just ate all the roses straight away. You know, that afternoon, they were gone. I was like, okay, you should have saved a few for who knows when the chocolate lady's coming back. <laughs> and so anyway, I saved, I saved most of my chocolates. I had a few, but I saved them. And I knew what my sisters were like, so I had to hide my chocolates in a very good spot. 
a really, really good spot because I knew they were going to go looking for my chocolates because they knew I only had a few and there was whole, uh, most of the box was still there. And so anyway, I hid the chocolates and I hid them so, so well in my bedroom. I couldn't find them, Julie. You're right, I couldn't find them. I couldn't find them and I'm like, where did I put my chocolates? I forgot where I put them. And then one day, I'm just going through my cupboard, and guess what? Lo and behold, I stumble across my box of roses. And I'm telling you, I was the happiest boy in all of Footscray. I'm telling you, <laughs> I was the happiest camper. And I sat down on my bed, I closed the door, made sure my sisters were nowhere to be seen, and I opened the box of roses... And oh boy, I was just salivating. I was just salivating. You can just imagine. I was just picturing these chocolates and I was just going to enjoy these chocolates. I opened the first one. <gasps> Shock! There was a rock in there. I'm like, I'm like, oh no. That's what I said, Mel. Oh no. Wait until I catch up with Cadbury. And you know, they'll give me a year's supply of chocolate. So I opened up the second one and lo and behold, another rock. I'm like, oh man, alive. What on earth is going on? I opened up the third one and guess what? Another rock. And I knew what had happened. I knew the problem wasn't with Cadbury. <laughs> I knew the problem wasn't with Cadbury. The problem was my sisters had found my chocolates. And in every wrapper, there was a rock. Not one chocolate left. Not one chocolate left. The nerve of these sisters of mine. <sighs> Taken in, defrauded. <laughs> I learned the hard way from a young age what it means to be deceived. Now, we all laugh about that. And that is to be laughed at. Nothing serious. But tonight, we want to talk about a serious topic where this world has been defrauded by one of God's greatest blessings. By one of God's greatest what? Blessings. Today we want to go back to where we were the last time we were together. You remember? We, we looked at how God created this world and how He gave to the human race, Adam and Eve, He gave them two wonderful gifts. Two wonderful gifts from the Garden of Eden. One of them was marriage in the family. What was the first gift? Marriage. marriage in the family. And the second gift that he gave to them on the very next day, on the seventh day, was the Sabbath. These two wonderful gifts, God placed in the very heart of his Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment and the fifth commandment deal with the Sabbath and marriage in the family. And these two commandments, in case you haven't noticed, stand out from all the other commandments. Isn't that right? All the other eight commandments begin with thou shalt not, but not the Sabbath and not marriage in the family. The Sabbath begins with remember, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And marriage in the family begins with what? Honor thy mother and thy father. These two commandments stand out as the two blessings that God gave at the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden. And the last time we were together, we, we, we discovered that from Genesis to Revelation, God's holy, blessed Sabbath day, all the way through Scripture. Isn't that right? From Genesis to Revelation, a wonderful blessing. And we even discovered from the book of Isaiah, chapter 66 and verses 22 and 23, that from one Sabbath to another, all of God's people on the new earth, where? On the new earth will gather from Sabbath to Sabbath and worship Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. So the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, speaks only of the seventh day Sabbath rest that God gave to the human race at the beginning of time, before sin entered the world, and that would remain until sin is eradicated from this world all the way down through history. So the, so the million dollar question is, where did Sunday worship come from? Today, as we're all aware, those who are watching, all aware that the majority of Christians go to church on what day today? On Sunday, on the first day of the week and not on the seventh day of the week. So the question is, the obvious question is, why? Why is this the case? 
Where on earth did Sunday worship come from? Why do millions and millions and millions and millions of people today follow a deception, what I call a hoax, history's greatest hoax? Well, tonight, from God's Word and from the pages of history, we are going to discover the answer to this question, this all-important question. So before we open up God's Word, and I thank God for His Word. Do you thank God for His Word? Before we open up God's Word, what do we need to do? We need to pray. We need to ask God to lead and to guide us, to give us wisdom and understanding as we unpack this very important subject, extremely important. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we're about to open up your holy word. And we ask and pray that you will open up our minds, give us understanding, but also, Father, touch our hearts that we may have, have an understanding based on a love for you. Father, we also pray that you will help us understand from the pages of history what has taken place and where we are today and why things are the way they are. So, Father, we claim the promise in your word where you have told us, if we abide in your word, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Set us free, Father, from the deceptions of the enemy. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen and Amen. Let me give you a short history of sun worship down through time. Okay, just a few sentences to summarize 6,000 years of history. Throughout history, many ancient cultures worshiped the sun. Light and heat were essential elements to cultures dependent on agriculture. Therefore, the great force of the sun became the object of their worship, and that only makes sense. Individuals that lived their lives based on the agricultural cycle depended on the sun, like we depend on the sun. And so that's how sun worship came into ancient cultures. Sun worship began in Babylon, as far as the historical data that we have, with the god Shamash and spread to Egypt, Ra. That is why the pharaohs were called Ramesses. The sun god was right there at the very heart of their name, at the beginning of the Pharaoh's name. He was the one that was worshipped as the, 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 the child of the sun god, Ramesses. Assyria, Baal, Persia, Mithra, in Canaan, the, god, the sun god was known as Moloch. Over time, sun worship spread throughout the world to places such as Greece, the Aztecs, the Incas of Peru, Japan, India, and the Roman Empire. So sun worship began in Babylon and has spread its tentacles throughout the entire world, throughout all the world's major religions. Many of them, I should say, not all of them, but many of the world's major religions. In fact, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament where God forbids His people to worship the sun and to worship the other elements. Notice this scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 3. Who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them? Either the what? The sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have not commanded. And as you read through the pages of the Old Testament in particular, you discovered God's people time and again worshipping the, the sun god that the nations that surrounded them worshipped, the Canaanites, they worshipped the sun god. And, god. and God, on a number of occasions, you'll read in Scripture, where God forbids sun worship, where He castigates His people for worshipping on the sun. James Cardinal Gibbons, Gibbons who's now passed away, he was a, he was a prominent uh, Roman Catholic theologian. Um, he lived during the 19th and during the early part of the 20th century. And he wrote this epic on church history that he entitled The Faith of Our Fathers. Now he addresses this question of Sunday worship and notice what he writes in his book. This is on page 561. Um, he writes... You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious, the religious observance of Saturday. Crystal clear. You can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find one scripture where God changed the day of worship or the disciples changed the day of worship or anyone for that matter 
change the day of worship from Saturday the seventh day to Sunday the first day of the week. There are eight first day texts in the New Testament and not one of them speak of this change taking place. Very, very clear from Scripture and James Cardinal Gibbons points this out. In fact, the word Sabbath, which means rest. What does the word Sabbath mean? Rest, Shabbat. We looked at that, we looked at that the other day. The word Sabbath is incorporated in over 100 modern and ancient languages of the word, where the root word for Saturday is actually Sabbath. Let me just list a number of them here in German. It's Samstag. In French, it's Samedi. Anyone here speak French? That's what the word for Saturday is. Spanish, it's Sabado. In Italian, it's Sabato. In Macedonian, my language, it's Sabota. That's Saturday in Macedonia. If you go there, that's what people refer to as Saturday. In Serbo-Croatian, it's Subota. Arabic, it's Sabet. In Sudanese, it's Saptu. In Maltese, it's Is-Sibit. In Latin, it's Sabatum. In Czech, it's Sobota. In Gregorian, it's Sabati. In Greek, it's Sabato. There you go. I stuck that one in for you, Michael. I didn't want you to miss out. Is that right, Sabato? That's Saturday. In Greece, Armenian, it's Shabbat. In Russian, it's Subota. And there you go. So all these, all these different languages of the word of the world, their word for Saturday is a derivative from Sabbath. Now, why do we call why don't we call it Sabbath in Australia? Why do we call it Saturday? Because we have followed on from the Romans who named their days of the week after the planetary gods, like Sunday, you know, the day of the sun. That one's pretty straightforward. Saturday is Saturn's day. So that's where we get that, you know. Monday is moon day, the moon day, and so on and so forth. Thursday, Thor's day, and you can go down through the list. So that's where we get our names for, for the days of the week. But not so um, as far as Saturday is concerned in all these languages. The word is literally Sabbath. Jesus, in Matthew 24, he made it very clear that the seventh day Sabbath would continue to be observed by Christians some 40 years after his, his, his death and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. Notice these words in Matthew 24, verse 20. Jesus said, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or what? On the Sabbath. Here Jesus is specifically speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 AD. In what year? In 70 AD, some 40 years after the time of Jesus. And Jesus made it clear that Christians would continue to be keeping the Sabbath day some four decades later. So the question is again, we come back to this question. How and when did the change take place? I wanted to know the answer. I don't know about you, but I'm not the kind of person that just takes someone word, someone's word for it. I want to know myself. I like to do my own investigating. And I've encouraged you to do the same. So I encourage you to do your own research. I encourage you to find out for yourself. When it comes to eternal truth, you need to know for yourself what the truth is. Otherwise, you might get caught up in fake news. Anyone here heard of fake news? <laughs> it's become popular, hasn't it, that term fake news. So you and I need to know from the Bible. So I wanted to know from the Bible and the pages of history. So I spent three months studying this topic out while I was at college studying to be a minister. Three months. I did my assignment on this very subject. And so I went through and I looked at a lot of literature, a lot of books. This is in the days before WWW, in the days before the internet. So you just have to go to the books and the, and the journals in order to find the answer. And um, I came across probably the best book on this subject written by an individual by the name of Dr. Samuel Bacchiocchi. He's passed away now. He's an Italian. And, um, and he did his PhD thesis on this very subject. His, 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 his book is entitled From Sabbath to Sunday, A Historical Investigation of the Rise of, the, of Sunday Observance in Early Christianity. And the really good thing about what Samuel Bacchiocchi did, he was the first Protestant to go to Rome 
and to study the original sources there in the Pontifer, in the Pontifical Gregorian University Press, as it's there on the cover. He went to Rome and he dealt with the original sources to find out how and when this change took place. So I want to share with you briefly what he discovered there at the university in Rome. And by the way, um, I have that book at home. Um, you can still probably get it online. It's worth getting. It's not too heavy to read. Um, he received an imprimatur, which is like a gold medal from the Church of Rome because of his incredible, exhaustive research and how well he documented and how well he researched um, this subject and this question. So tonight I just want to share with you briefly what he discovered um, in his research. Firstly, the change of the Sabbath took place gradually. It didn't happen overnight. Okay, nothing generally happens overnight overnight that is huge and, and consequential. I just want to put up for you three points, three major points that Samuel Bakayoki and others also have stated how this change from Saturday to Sunday took place. It was a gradual change. Firstly, anti-Judaism. During the second century, Christians developed a theology of separation from and contempt toward the Jews. You see, the Jews were getting themselves into a lot of trouble with the Romans. And in order to distinguish themselves from the Jews, many Christians began keeping Sunday, not so much as a holy day, but as a holiday, as, a, as another day to distinguish themselves. A little bit like what's happening today in the world, in the Muslim world. Do you have many Muslims today that don't want to be associated with terrorists? Absolutely. They don't want to be associated with terrorists. And there was a, there was a hashtag recently, not in my name. Do you remember that? Not in my name. And so they didn't want to be associated. And so uh, the, the change gradually began to, to take place. Sun worship was another major factor. The pagan Romans worshipped the sun as their chief god. The Christians, in order to befriend the pagans, began to adopt the symbol of the sun and Sunday as a replacement day of worship by reasoning that God created light and Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. So here the compromise is beginning to take place where the Christians are trying to be friendly to the pagans. They're trying to somehow win the pagans over and they're like, well, it's not a big deal if we change our day of worship to fall in line with the day that you worship on. You worship the sun, God, on the first day of the week. We can kind of do that, I'm sure. Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week and people and the Christians, many of them reasoned in this way. Then there was what took place in the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome. Well, the church at Rome, I should say. The most powerful church in the Roman Empire encouraged Sunday worship rather than Saturday worship. The Sabbath became a day of fasting and Sunday became a day of feasting. So the change is slowly taking place during the 2nd, 3rd and 4th century in particular. And so how excited would you be as a child if Saturday was a day of fasting and Sunday was a day of feasting? How excited would you be about Saturday and the Sabbath? I don't think you'd be very excited at all. And so, and so this is how the change began to take place. Now, a huge contributor to this change process was an individual by the name of Constantine. Who's here of Constantine the Great? Okay, he was a Roman emperor um, during the fourth uh, century, and he became a Christian. He is the first Christian um, Roman emperor. Now, he was formerly a sun-worshipping pagan, as all the Roman emperors were. In fact, we have a coin here from the time of Constantine. This is the time during the time of Constantine. And can you see these three horns on Constantine's head? These three horns are the sun, the rays of the sun. So very clearly from this coin, we know that he was, he was a, a sun-worshipping pagan. But he became a Christian. Now, how did he become a Christian? Good question. Thank you for asking. It all happened at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. You see, there were two emperors vying for the position of emperor. You can't have two emperors running the empire. Only one. And there were two. And you had Constantine 
who went to war against Maxentius. And this all took place on October 28, 312. They were to battle it out at what is known the Milvian Bridge, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Now, what Constantine says happened is very fascinating the night before the battle. The night before the battle, Constantine said that he had a vision or a dream where he was told, in the sign of the cross, you will conquer tomorrow. The sign of the cross, the sign of Christianity, the sign of Jesus Christ. And so Constantine, he asked all his soldiers to put the cross on their shields. He marched them as one account tells us he marched them through the river. That was their baptism. And so Constantine and all his soldiers became Christians overnight. They were all baptized. And Constantine and his army defeated Maxentius and his army. He became the emperor and Constantine credited his victory to none other than Jesus Christ and the cross. And he became a Christian. That is where it all began in 312 AD. I have, a, I have this archaeological um, tablet. You can't see it very well there, um, but this is from Macedonia. This was um, found in an archaeological site there in Macedonia when I was visiting one time. I went to this archaeological dig um, from the 6th to the 7th century, and it's called Constantine's Cross. On here, you can have a look at it later, there is Constantine's Cross. And they found this archaeological tablet from the 6th or the 7th century there in Macedonia, uh, which was part of the Roman Empire once upon a time. And so the question that Constantine had was this, how could Constantine unite his empire? You see, Constantine had two major groups in his empire. He had Christians, they were a huge group by now, they had really swelled in number, and then he had the sun-worshipping pagans, they were a huge group also. How could he marry the two? He came up with a brilliant plan. Constantine decided to marry the two by passing the first ever Sunday law in order to unite his empire. Brilliant political manoeuvre! Today, historians marvel at how wonderful this maneuver was and, and how well it took off. So what did he do? He created the first ever Sunday law. Notice, this is from the pen of Constantine in 321 AD. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be closed. This was the first ever Sunday law where Constantine said, we are going to unite the Roman Empire and we're all going to worship on the first day of the week. Christians, you can come in and you can worship the Son of God on Sunday. The pagans, well, they worship their Son God on Sunday. So everyone was happy. A little bit like what politicians do today, don't they? They come and they visit you and they tell you what you want to hear. They go visit someone who's got totally opposite views and they'll tell them what they want to hear. Isn't that right? For political gain. Sadly, in the days of Constantine, church and state united. It's extremely sad, but history points out, and I don't have time to get into the statements, I could share them with you if you like at another time. But the Roman church, the church of the day, was fully supportive of Constantine's actions, fully supportive, and, 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 and initiated a number of its own laws and, and a number of its own encyclicals in the years to come that established Sunday, the first day of the week, as the day of worship. And anyone who was um, worshipping on the Sabbath, the seventh day, they were looked down upon in a very, very negative way. I have this little convert's catechism with me. I purchased it some time ago. And in this convert's catechism... Um, of the, of the Catholic Church, official Catholic doctrine. And what I'm sharing with you tonight is only official sources. I don't believe in sharing with you stuff that someone else said. I believe in sharing with you from the horse's mouth. Is that fair enough? You know, I wouldn't want you to go sharing with me from what other people say. I want to hear from those original sources. So this is um, 
uh, an authorized version from the Church of Rome on what it teaches and what it believes on different, on different uh, elements of, of doctrine. Notice this question, which is the Sabbath day? It's in this little booklet, page 50. Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Well, the obvious question is what? Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Is that an obvious follow-up question? Absolutely, it sure is. Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. That's what the history books tell us. The change never took place in the Bible. You won't find it anywhere in Scripture. As we earlier read from James Cardinal, Gibbon, uh, James Cardinal Gibbons, the change took place when the church, the, the church of the day, the church of Rome, transferred the solemnity of the Sabbath, the holiness, from Saturday to Sunday, the church did that. Very, very clear evidence. In fact, not only the Church of Rome acknowledges that, but many other Christian churches acknowledge this very fact. This is from the Anglican Church Manual. Notice these words. Is there any command in the New Testament to change the day of weekly rest from Saturday to Sunday? What's the answer? None. Zero. Here's another one. This one is from the Baptist Church. Okay, many Baptists living here in Australia. This is from the Baptist Church. Uh, this is what you will find there um, in the Hiscox Guide for Baptist Churches, written by um, a Baptist theologian. There was and is a commandment to keep holy the Sabbath day. But the Sabbath day was not Sunday. It will be said, however, and with some show of triumph, that the Sabbath was transferred from the seventh to the first day of the week. Where can the record of such a transaction be found? Not in the New Testament. Absolutely not. There you go, using my word. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely not. There is no scriptural evidence of the change of the Sabbath institution from the seventh to the first day of the week. There is, there is no change. There, 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 there is no change in scripture. It was all done through the Church of Rome in connection with Constantine and, and other emperors that followed. In fact, I have a little book here, a little booklet in my possession um, that gives a number of quotations from various churches, including the Mormons, uh, Presbyterians, uh, Lutherans, and so on and so forth, who basically state the same fact, which is a fact of history, and there's, and there's no denying that. Did all this catch God by surprise? What do you think? Was God caught by surprise with this incredible attempt to change one of God's Ten Commandments? Was God caught by surprise? What do you think? No, He wasn't. He wasn't. 900 years, 900 years before Constantine, eight to 900 years before Constantine, through His servant Daniel, God wrote these words in the Bible. Notice these words. Daniel 7.25, He... That is this power, and we're going to unpack that tomorrow night some more, shall intend or think to change what? Times and law. God predicted in the days of Daniel, some 500 years before Christ, that a power would come on the scene of history that would think or intend to change God's very law that as we discovered the other night, God wrote with his what? With his own what? Finger on tablets of what? Stone. Those original stones, as we discovered, were where from where? From the heavenly throne room. How dare anyone change one of God's Ten Commandments? But yet God said that would take place. The Apostle Paul comes along and he, and he reminds us of what God told us through his servant Daniel some five centuries earlier. Notice what he writes in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29. We read these words. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking what? Perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. The apostle Paul was very clear that after he departed, savage wolves in sheep's clothing would come into the Christian church. And they would come from within. From where? From within. Where you're not looking. 
No one's looking within, but that is where it all began, from within, and they would share perverse things. And this is one of the greatest perversions in Christianity today. This change of worship from Saturday to Sunday uh, are, are, are doing away with the fourth commandment that, by the way, begins with the word what? Remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Once again, in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, this is what the Apostle Paul writes regarding this system, this power that would be established. Let no one deceive you by any means, he writes. For that day, and he's speaking of the second coming of Jesus, will not come unless the falling away comes first. What is that word there, falling away? It's In the original, the word is apostasia. What's that word? Apostasia, we get the word apostasy or falling away. When, people, when someone goes into apostasy, they fall away from Bible truth. That's what the word means. And the man of sin, sin, according to the Bible, 1 John 3, 4, is lawlessness. So one that is against God's law. The man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. Fascinating phrase here that Paul uses. This phrase is only used one other time in the New Testament. Only one other time. Jesus uses the phrase, the son of perdition, to describe Judas and his work. To describe who? Judas and his work. Now, was Judas an insider or an outsider? An insider. The Apostle Paul is making it very clear that the rot will begin from within, not from without. Let's keep reading who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is what? Worship. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This power will take on board the prerogatives that belong to God alone. We're going to look at that some more tomorrow night. Fascinating study tomorrow night. Don't miss it for whatever you do. But part of the prerogatives of God is the Ten Commandments. Isn't that right? God gave the Ten Commandments, and He didn't even ask Moses to write them down. God gave the Ten Commandments, and He Himself wrote them down on tablets of stone. That's just how important that is. And that is a prerogative that belongs to God, and no one has, and no one has the right to mess with that. The truth is, Sabbath-keeping Christians were persecuted by the Church of Rome all through the Dark Ages. That's, that's a sad fact of history. I have... Here, you can check this out later on. I here have a chart um, that is a summary of 2,000 years of, of Sabbath-keeping Christians. 2,000 years of Sabbath-keeping Christians in different parts of Europe in particular and Northern Africa. And these individuals, sadly, many of them were persecuted. They were persecuted. Many of them lost their lives. They paid the ultimate price. The Bible tells us, and we're going to look at this as we go along, but the Sabbath will once again be the major issue at the end of time. Did you know that? The Sabbath's going to be the major issue at the end of time. It's over worship. We're going to look at that as we go along. Don't miss those all-important subjects that we have next week. October 31, 15, 17, let's fast forward to what happened then. October 31, 15, 17 is when an earthquake rocked the Church of Rome. And I'm talking an earthquake that no Richter scale, no spiritual Richter scale could measure. When Martin Luther with his hammer and a nail and a bit of paper wrote those 95 theses as they have become known. 95 challenges. Why did he challenge? Good question. Thank you for asking again. Martin Luther challenged the fallen religious culture of his day that you cannot do anything to earn your salvation. You cannot pay any amount of money to receive forgiveness, to get your dead out of purgatory and into heaven or do any such thing, 95 reasons why we must only go with the Bible and the Bible alone. And this absolutely shook the Christian world, shook it to the core. We just celebrated 500 years since the, since the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, October 31, 2017, last year, it was a big deal. And it was a big deal. You see, Martin Luther, four years later, at the Diet of Worms, he 
he challenged the church of Rome to stand on what? Sola Scriptura. What's Sola Scriptura? Sola, only, Scriptura, the Scriptures, only the Scriptures. You're thinking, what? They had a diet of worms? Do they all enjoy a lot of worms? <laughs> the kids are looking, thinking, well, I wouldn't want to be to a place like that where they ate a lot of worms. Was that, was that for their afternoon <laughs> snack in between the meetings? No. The place in Germany is called Worms. Not worms, but Worms. How do you say it? Worms. So it's not worms, but the city is called Worms. And diet simply means council. It was a council there in the city of Worms, there in Germany in 1521, where Martin Luther was brought before the Church of Rome and before, before the Roman Emperor to give an account and whether he would recant. And we're going to get to that right at the end some more. But Martin Luther challenged the Church of Rome to stand on the Bible and the Bible alone. So shortly after, just over 20 years, the Church of Rome held the Council of Trent, uh, probably the greatest council um, of the Church of Rome. Uh, over a period of, as you can see, some 18 years, 25 sessions, and there are a number of issues that they had to discuss and decide upon. There were three big issues. Here they are. The two plus one more I'll share with you. Objectives of the Council of Trent were to condemn the principles and doctrines of, the Protestant, of Protestantism. You see, Protestantism had now taken off and now it was creating havoc. Creating what? Havoc in the Church of Rome, the most powerful institution in Europe. Secondly, to clarify the doctrines of the Catholic Church on all disputed points. Okay, that were the two big things. Plus one more. This was the other big one. Would the church go with tradition or Bible truth? Would it go with tradition or Bible truth? Martin Luther, he challenged the church. He said, as far as I'm concerned, it's sola scriptura. Only the Bible and the Bible alone. That's all I care about. I don't care about tradition. I just care about Bible truth. And so the church had to make a decision whether it would go with Bible truth alone or whether it would be Bible truth and tradition. Which one of the two? You can't have both, can you? It's like being married to two people. Can you be married to two people successfully? Not on your life. Don't try it. Not in Australia anyway. It's illegal. <laughs> In case you were wondering. But notice a summary of what took place when it came to this issue of truth or tradition that the church hammered out over 18 years. This is from the Reverend Joseph uh, Far de Bruno in, in, the, in his book, The Catholic Belief. And he wrote these words, like two sacred rivers flowing from paradise, the Bible and divine tradition contain the word of God, the precious gems of revealed truths. Though these two divine streams are in themselves on account of their divine origin, of equal sacredness, that is, tradition and truth are both equally sacred, he goes on, and are both full of revealed truths, still, of the two are, tradition is to us more clear and safe. What a tragedy. What a tragedy with a capital T that the Church of Rome some 500 years ago chose to go with tradition over truth. That tradition was more certain than truth. One of the big issues, one of the big issues was the Sabbath. That was one of the big issues. If the Church of Rome decided to go with the Bible and the Bible alone, guess what they would have to do to their day of worship? Change the day of worship from Sunday, the first day of the week, to what day? Saturday, the seventh day of the week. And the Church of Rome said, we've gone too far. We cannot go back now. We cannot go back now. What a tragedy. What an absolute tragedy. In fact, you know that the Church of Rome today does not truly recognize the other Christian churches as being sola scriptura based on this issue. I have a booklet here in my possession. 
Rome's challenge, Rome's challenge to Protestants. Rome's challenge to who? To Protestants. Why do Protestants keep Sunday? Good question. Very good question. Because Protestants claim Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, you name them all, Pentecostals, they all claim what? To go with what? The Bible and the Bible alone. Isn't that true? Protestants don't claim to go with the Bible and tradition. No, 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 no. Protestants claim to go with Sola Scriptura and the Church of Rome rightly asked the question, why do Protestants keep Sunday if they go with the Bible and the Bible alone? The truth is, my friends, you cannot go with the Bible and the Bible alone and only go with nine of the Ten Commandments and, and forget the commandment that begins with the word what? Remember, ironically enough, what did Jesus have to say about tradition? Did Jesus have anything to say about placing tradition above God's truth? Notice what we find here. In the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, we read these words, and in vain, in what? In vain, or it's useless, useless. They worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of who? Men, for laying aside the commandment of who? Of God, you hold to the tradition of men. In Jesus' day, in whose day? In Jesus' day, the religious leaders would rather go with the tradition of man that they had made up than go with the commandments of God that God had given, written down on stone with his very own finger. You can go and read the, read the whole passage there from verse 1 all the way to verse 13. And Jesus says, you would rather discontinue the fifth commandment, honor thy mother and thy father, in order to establish your own greed, your own what? Your own greed and your own traditions. Go home and read that for homework. Jesus, he didn't think too highly of placing tradition above Bible truth, did he? Something for us to think about. So you and I need to make a choice. We need to make a choice. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have both. It's either following the Bible and following Jesus and following truth or following man, following what a church or churches say and following tradition and keeping the commandments of man. Can you see? There's only two options. You can't have truth and tradition. It doesn't work. Jesus made that very clear. The Bible makes it very clear. We can either go with one or the other. We must, we must make a choice. God gives us the opportunity to choose based on his word. We've got to ask ourselves, what is the foundation of our faith? Is it what the Bible says or is it what man says? I don't know about you. I've said this before, I'll say it again. But my allegiance is to God and His Word alone. Amen? That's it. God and His Word alone. I'm telling you. I'm telling you the truth. You are all my witnesses. It's on tape. It's going to go on YouTube, wherever. If this church that I'm part of, that I'm employed by, that I'm a minister of, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, part of its name is the Seventh Day, in case you were wondering, if this church one day, God forbid, but if this church one day decides we don't want to stick out like a sore thumb anymore, we want to be like everybody else, a bit like the Israelites, we want to be like all the other nations, give us a king like all the other nations, and if this church that I'm part of, that, that, that I'm a minister of, decides that it's going to go the way of the rest of Christianity, 90% of Christianity, and worship on Sunday, guess what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be out of here. I'm going to be out of here quicker than you can say, Freddie. <laughs> I will worship God in spirit and in truth under a tree. Under where? Under a tree. Because my allegiance is not to any church. My allegiance is to no human institution. My allegiance and your allegiance likewise ought to be to God and His Word alone. Amen? Amen. Absolutely. There you go. I said it again. I had to say it then. It needed to be said. Notice what the Apostle Peter had to say. Acts 5.29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey who? God rather than man. Absolutely crystal clear. Notice what we read here. 
The Apostle Paul preaching in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, we have these words recorded. Truly, these times of what? Ignorance. God did what? Overlooked. I like the King James Version. It says God winked at. You know, wink. He winked at. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. You may be thinking, you may be saying, I had no idea about this, Danny. Those who are watching, wherever you may be watching, Australia, Alaska, Africa, wherever, you may have no idea of what I've just shared. You probably were completely oblivious. You were worshipping God in the best possible way, being faithful to God and to His Word based on what you believe to be truth, worshipping each and every Sunday with, on your own or with your family. And today you have discovered the truth of God's Word and the truth of history. And today you, all of us, have an opportunity to make a decision to follow God's truth. Isn't that true? We have an opportunity. When we don't know what is right, God winks. He overlooks our ignorance because we don't know. We don't know. But when we do know, what does God expect? He invites us then, because we love Him, to follow His truth. To follow His what? To follow His truth. Notice what we read in the book of James. James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is what? Sin. When you know what's right and you don't do what's right, then it is sin. It's not sin when you don't know. Before, tonight, before you viewed this, wherever you may be, and you had no idea, fine. God sees your, your heart. He sees your sincerity. You are worshipping God in sincerity and in truth as best you knew it. But when we have been exposed to God's truth, then we have an opportunity to make a choice one way or the other. And to still follow a hoax, to still follow error, the Bible says it is sin. In fact, notice what James goes on and says in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. In other words, he's, he's, speaking of, he's speaking of the person who disregards one of the commandments. If you disregard one, you might as well throw all ten out the window. Get rid of all ten if you're going to get rid of one. That's what James is saying. Is he talking about the commandments? Absolutely. Let's keep reading. Notice the context. For he, speaking of God, who said, do not commit adultery, also said what? Do not murder. Are they commandments? Yes, they are. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. All ten commandments go together. God forbid, God forbid that we would get rid of the one commandment that God said, remember. Who's behind all that ultimately? It's the devil, isn't it? The devil's the one behind it all. It's not a human institution, not a church, not Constantine, but ultimately the one behind it all was none other than the devil himself. That's why God has a final, a final message of love to the whole world. It's called the Three Angels' Messages, and we're going to be unpacking that some more as we go along in this coming week. But the first angel's message that God shares with the entire world, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, says this, Revelation 14, 7, Worship who? Him, God, who made heaven and earth the sin and springs of water. We discovered last time we were together, where are these words coming from? They're coming from creation. They're coming directly from the fourth commandment. God is inviting the world to worship the Creator God on the day that He set aside for worship, the day that He blessed, the day that was holy. Will God have a people who will heed the invitation to worship Him? The Bible says He will. Notice how God describes His end-time people. These are right at the end of time because what follows is the second coming of Jesus if you keep reading Revelation 14. In verse 12 we read, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the what? Commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. God will have a faithful people at the end of time. Make no mistake, my friend, the issue is over worship. What's the issue over? Worship. That is the central issue. The first war in heaven was over worship. The last war on earth will be over worship. Worship is about allegiance. It's about loyalty. Who will you be loyal to? Who will have your allegiance? 
That's what worship is all about. Who is worthy? That's where the word comes from. Worth-ship. Who is worthy of your allegiance? Is it Jesus Christ or is it the enemy? For every truth that God gives us in his word, the enemy comes along with what? A counterfeit or a hoax. And he doesn't just put some rock in some wrapping paper in a box of roses. No, 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 no. The devil is playing for keeps. The devil is playing for eternity. He knows if he can keep us away from his, God's word, we will automatically worship him. Because that's how it works. Away from the word, we have no idea of what true worship is. I want to finish off with this story. Uh, I had the opportunity in 2010 of going to Germany, going to many other sites where Martin Luther uh, grew up and where he worked, where he ministered, where he lived. And, um, and this is a statue, I'm not sure, of, of Martin Luther, as you can see, a statue of Martin Luther. I'm not sure what, what town it is, but it has, uh, it, it has Martin Luther here pictured. And in his, um, I guess that would be his right hand, he is scrunching up a bit of paper. This is the papal bull, the one that condemned him and his writings and condemned him to death. He was condemned to death. He was a man that had wanted on his head. And in his left hand, you can't see it very well, but he's holding the Bible. So what's he doing with this papal bull? <laughs> Scrunching it up with the Bible. All he cares about is the Bible. We went to the very place where Martin Luther made a stand. This is a, an artist um, portrayal of that day in 1521 where Martin Luther stood before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the Church of Rome and its leadership at the Diet of Worms there in 1521 where he made his stand. I stood there at the very place. I'm telling you it was a humbling experience. It was a sacred experience. It's almost like I felt like I was on holy ground. There in Germany, in the city of Worms, the place where it is believed Martin Luther made his stand. In fact, there's a plaque right there. And it's written in German. And you can probably guess what the words say. Here I stand, I can do no other. Martin Luther, 1521. Martin Luther made a stand on the Word of God, willing, willingly put his life on the line, literally, his life on the line for the sake of the Word of God. What did Martin Luther say? You want to know? I'm sure you do. Notice these words, his concluding words when he was asked, will you recant what you have written? And these were his words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of what? Of the scriptures or by clear reason. For I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by what? The scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And here are those words that have that have, that have echoed down through the last five centuries, that have brought courage and hope and inspiration to countless millions of God's people. Here I was. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Here I stand. I don't know about you, my friend. I don't know about you. You who are watching, wherever you may be, but I am praying that wherever you are today, that you also will determine by the grace of God and through his strength that you will stand on the word of God. Like Martin Luther, that your life motto will be, here I stand on the word of God. I can do no other. May God help me. May God help me. And God will one day, help Martin Luther. God will one day, when he sends Jesus, when he sends Jesus in the clouds of glory, he will say, Martin Luther, you were faithful to me 
I want to be faithful to you now. It's time to join the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. Amen? It's time to join him. Jesus today is inviting you. He's inviting me. He's inviting all of us, wherever you may be watching. Jesus is inviting you to make that stand, to follow Jesus, to be faithful to him. Jesus says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's all about love. Do you love Jesus? That's what it boils down to. It's not about a day. It's about a person. It's about a person. Do you love Jesus? If you do, he says, keep my commandments because you love me. All of them, including the one that begins with remember that sadly the majority of the Christian world today, the majority of the world at large has forgotten. Well, it's time to pray. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you so much for your word. Where would we be without your word, Father? We would be completely lost. We would be completely under the, under the spell of the deceptive enemy who only wants to deceive and defraud us of your wonderful truth that sets us free, your wonderful truth that brings such blessings. Oh, Lord, tonight we have discovered the truth about your day of worship. And I pray, Father, that by your grace and through your strength, you will give us everything that we need to follow you, to be faithful to you, to be loyal to you, to show our allegiance to you by worshipping you on the day that you have set aside for worship, the seventh day, the Sabbath day. We thank you for the Sabbath. It's 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 right upon us right now, and we thank you for it. And bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.